May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. As we began Lent two and a half weeks ago, I invited us all to see this Lent as a time to reflect on what has been life-giving for you and us over this last while, and to use this time to learn to live in more grateful and life-giving ways, knowing that God is faithful. Great things to begin Lent with. And now that we're halfway through, we have the theme of repentance. There is no more Lenten theme than repentance, is there? We hear it on the Ash Wednesday service when, as we're of the ash applied to us, we either say in our heads or hear the words, turn from sin and live the gospel. And it's there all through Lent. Repent. But I wonder, as I've asked before, what we understand by that word, repent. In the pew sheet, I've quoted one of my favourite commentators, Matt Skinner, who uh, American, working at, uh, well, works uh, with Working Preacher, an online resource uh, at a Lutheran uh, seminary. And he describes, uh, well, he says that repentance, so he says a lot of the time uh, we think repentance is about moral uprightness, expressions of regret, or 180 degree turnaround. And he says repentance becomes much less interesting when people mistake it to mean moral uprightness, expressions of regret, or 180 degree turnaround. Rather, here, and in many other places in the Bible, it refers to a changed mind, to new ways of seeing things, to being persuaded to adopt a different perspective. It means similar things in other contexts from the whole wider Greek literary world. So an example of that is what happened to this person, Michelle Robinson, who, as I talked about a few years ago, uh, met the intern she was supposed to be looking after who had come to her Chicago law firm and this law firm was very keen that this intern, whose name was Barack, uh, join their, their firm. He came with a great reputation and they wanted him in their firm and her job was to persuade him to join their firm. She had set her goals on being a successful lawyer and had worked very hard at that, with all the monetary return that that was going to bring. But in her conversations with this Barack, she realised that she was caring about the wrong things. And he helped her realise what really mattered to her. He did not join that law firm. And she did not stay in that law firm. Because she eventually left and worked for a number of non-profits and for uh, some tertiary institutions before picking up another job when her husband got a pretty important job. That is, of course, Michelle Obama. We might call this a repentance moment. It wasn't that she had done anything morally wrong, but she began to look at her life from a different point of view. And she made big changes because of that. 
including marrying him. And when her priorities changed, that had far-reaching consequences both for her and for the many others who then came in contact with her through her non-for-profit jobs. That's what repentance is about. That's what Matt Skinner is talking about when he talks about repentance in the New Testament. We might describe it as learning to see through God's eyes, caring about things that God cares about, and measuring our success on that. So I wonder, what have been the moments of repentance for you over your life? And when you might have looked at your life from different points of view and made changes because of that. So I'll just give you a moment to think about that. When have been the moments of repentance for you? Our Gospel reading this morning from Luke 13, 1-9 is all about repentance. All about learning to see through God's eyes. And in part, that means learning to see God differently. Jesus lived in a world where God was often understood as a moral judge who punished the sinful and rewarded the righteous. But here in this story, he is inviting his hearers, including us, to have a bigger view than this image of God that, well, some might say bears no fruit. So to the question, are these people Pilate killed more sinful than the rest of us? Jesus' answer is a simple no. They were just as sinful as you. You are the same as those killed. They were not killed because of any sin. It just happened. But then Jesus really seems to muddy the water with, unless you change your hearts and lives, unless you repent, you will die just as they did. Which is kind of interesting because we're all going to die anyway. But he goes on to tell the parable of the fruitless fig tree threatened with destruction, which has been interpreted by many as repent or perish, or my personal favourite, turn or burn. Which seems to be the exact opposite to the point he began with. So I wonder if there are other ways of reading the story. And as part of that, I wonder where we see the God figure in the story. And I suspect that most of us would see the owner as the God figure. Because we tend to gravitate towards the most powerful person in the story as the God figure. Which is problematic because in some of those parables, the most powerful person in the story is horrible. And if that's God, personally, I don't want a bar of that. So maybe the most powerful person in the story is not always the God figure and other figures in the story act in the place of the divine. So in this story, 
we often see the owner as the God figure. And some people see the gardener as Jesus. Persuading the grumpy God figure to give us one more chance. But if we don't take it, we will perish. It's a pretty brutal story, really. The trouble with it is, it just doesn't gel with the image of God that Jesus offers in his life and in his ministry. It's an image of a God with compassion and mercy and generosity. So how do you kind of place that alongside this image? So maybe we need to be open to the possibility that the God figure is not the owner, but in fact the other person in the story, the gardener. And if the God figure is the gardener, then suddenly this is not a God who is turn or burning, but is a God of second chances. A God who desires us to be fruitful. A God who will do what it takes to allow us to thrive. This is a faithful God. Faithful to us, and as I said last week, faithful to the covenant. A faithful God and that is the God that the scriptures keep talking about. So I thank God that we have a God who gives second chances. And who allows us to fruit and thrive. Now, that's not, you don't need to do anything. There is certainly an expectation that in response to the second chances, you will engage in that and be fruitful. But it is a God of second chances. And surely, that's a lot more like the God we meet in Isaiah 55. That wonderful passage that Donald wrote. A God of outrageous generosity. Offering more life than possibly than people could possibly need. To everyone who asks, no matter how deserving they are or not deserving. Just everyone. More food, more life, more milk than anyone could possibly ever need. As the American commentator said, this is not economically sustainable. <laughs> I was very interested that that was where they landed on that story. The economics doesn't stack up. I was like, I don't think that's the point really, but okay. But maybe that is the point. The economics don't stack up, and yet God still offered that. That's the kind of God that Isaiah is talking about. In our Lenten study today, we're going to read about Abraham Herschel. This is him here with Martin Luther King Jr. He was a Polish Jew from two distinguished Hasidic dynasties. He completed his PhD in Berlin in 1932, 1932 just as Adolf Hitler came to power. So it took some time for his dissertation to be published, which had to happen before he could graduate, because of the anti-Semitism that he gave voice to and that became rife within German society. He continued to work in Germany, living in Frankfurt until 1938 when he was arrested by the Gestapo and sent to a detention camp on the border with Poland. His family were eventually able to get him released and six weeks before Hitler invaded Poland, 
Uh, he left to go to the United States uh, for a, to lecture at the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. The president of that college was working really hard to get as many Germ uh, Jewish academics out of that part of the world as possible because he could see what was happening. But none of his family had visas, so they all had to stay. The West was very tight about which Jews could get out. You had to have visas, and they, uh, they weren't inclined to give too many of those visas. There was a big conference uh, in the late 1930s about the Jewish issue, like all these Jews trying to get out of Western Europe. And uh, on the walls of Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, are the words of the Australian Foreign Minister. We don't have a Jewish problem here. We don't want one. The borders will stay closed. And that's what happened. The borders stay closed. Unless you had a visa. So his mother, three sisters, and as he said later, almost everyone who knew him as a child died in the Holocaust. So life was tough for him. It took him a long time to find his feet in the United States and to find joy. But then, in the 1960s, he became one of the most prominent and influential religious voices in the United States. He became a high-profile social activist, joining Martin Luther King and many others on the walk from Selma to Montgomery, and adding his voice to the many voices that spoke against the war in Vietnam. So this is a great photo of some of the most significant civil rights leaders. There's John Lewis, who's right over on your right, uh, next to the person that looks like a nun. And there's Martin Luther King and uh, Herschel, uh, Ralph Abernathy, and uh, several other big names of the civil rights movement. He also became an important public interpreter of Judaism to the wider American public. And unusually for an acidic Jew, he developed friendships because they tend to stick to their own group. He developed friendships with a broad range of Christians, including Martin Luther King Jr., Jesse James, Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Workers Movement, and Thomas Merton, among others. And much of his social activism was carried out in collaboration with those Christian friends. What was surprising about this was, until the 1960s, there was no hint of this social activism in anything that he wrote or any of the talks that he gave. Something happened in the 1960s. His daughter Susanna comments that that thing that happened was his revisiting of his doctoral thesis, which was on the prophets. So he went back and reworked it so that it could be published in English, and you can still buy it today. That happened in 1962, and it deeply affected him. So here I'm going to use the material in our Lenten study written by Dr. Jeffrey Troughton. And he says that Herschel saw that the prophets, not just not as bearers of timeless truths, which sometimes we tend to see them as, but transmitters of divine pathos. They were, above all else, mediators of God's emotions, 
feeling and passion. From the prophets, Herschel understood God to be deeply moved and affected by what happens in this world and responsive to it. And the prophets were in tune to this and expressed it. He urged that we must see ourselves not only as not only an image of God, but a perpetual concern of God, a consort, a partner, a factor in the life of God. And he said we encounter God within a situation of shared suffering and of shared responsibility. And that shared responsibility involved taking action, following the prophets in their bias in favour of the poor. And that taking action was important to him, because he had lived in the 1930s in Germany, where good Christians, who had repented, remained silent. And where good Christians, in America and around the world, remained silent. And did nothing. And in America, where good white Christians fought against civil rights for blacks. And so he knew that, that for any religion, there had to be Jewish Christian, there needed to be action. Otherwise, we were not joining in the shared responsibility. The prophets demand that we join in the action. So repentance was much more, is much more than saying sorry. It is seeing the world through God's eyes. And Herschel offers one way of what that looks like. It is also seeing God with new eyes in Scripture and in the world around us. And maybe it is knowing that we are a perpetual concern of God. And that we meet God within a situation of shared suffering and of shared responsibility. So I wonder how this led, how this might help us learn to live in a more thankful and more life-giving ways, knowing that God is faithful. And what fruit, going back to our passage from Luke, what fruit might grow? In our life because of this. So we're not going to do the uh, creed. So I invite us to just pause for a moment and to think about that. Think about what I've just talked about, which bits grabbed you, and if you want to, you can talk to your neighbour about that. If you don't want to, you can just sit there in silence and think about it. So we'll give you a minute or two to do that.